Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 177 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings, session number 53-ish, I forget, uh, on Council of Elrond. Um, but excited to get back into things tonight. Sorry, I'm a little later than usual. I know, even late by my standards tonight, it's been quite a day today been uh running around doing unexpected things uh and it's been it's been a good day but a very crazy running around day so um delighted to be back here with you guys uh at um uh at the end of my day well the end of the normal part of my day. Uh, so just a, a couple quick announcements before we go. Don't forget about MythMoot 8. Uh, we are taking registrations for MythMoot 8, so I hope that you will join us there and look into the options that we have uh, and join sooner rather than later so you can be a part of our decision-making process about whether we try a hybrid moot this year or not. Uh, so um, that's, uh, again, uh, the dates on that are June 24th through 27th uh, for our moot, myth moot, and I hope you'll consider joining us for that. Also, don't forget... Um, uh, Signum Academy Clubs, uh, Signum Academy Clubs, which is uh, starting up now. Very excited about this. Our new uh, grade three through grade 12 um, language arts extracurricular program, book club, creative writing club, language clubs. It's going to be awesome. Please look into that at the Signum Academy website. You can find all of these things on the Signum University homepage. Go to signumuniversity.org and you will see all the different selections of all of the things that we are doing that you can look into further. Events for MythMoot and you can see the Academy uh, for clubs and it's all going to be good. So Anyway, that is... Oh, good. Excellent, Tony. Glad to hear you submitted your presentation proposal. That, of course, is one of the things that you can do right now. Uh, our call for papers is up so you are in pr for proposals, for presentations, uh, so you can uh, submit that. So, anyway, hope that you guys will all look into those two things because they're going to be a lot of fun. All right, let's get back into the text because we have a lot to talk about, including many options for disposing of the ring, or perhaps I should say handling the ring, right? As we are, um, uh, uh, as we are gathered together with the council, right? Uh, in trying to figure out what to do. I assigned as homework last night, uh, last night, you know, I often have done that. In fact, I've always done that. Even like when, back when I was teaching brick and mortar class and, you know, a class that met like Monday, Wednesday, Friday or something like that, I would, they, students would always tease me for saying, I, as I said yesterday, um, it's always like when I'm in class, it's like the world of the class, right? And so yesterday means our last class. It's always yesterday, no matter how long it was. Um, but um, anyway, when I said last time, which is the yesterday in the world of this class, that um, uh, I, I wanted to I wanted to talk more about Elrond's assertion here in the second paragraph on this next slide here um, that they who dwell beyond the sea would not receive it for good or ill. It belongs to Middle Earth. It is for us who still dwell here to deal with it. Why? What's up with that? Why does he say that? On what authority does he say that? And if it's true, which I assume it is, um, I don't see any reason to believe that Elrond is just, uh, you know, blowing smoke here. Uh, I'm sure he's right. 
But if so, why? Why does that make sense? So I want to I want to talk that through. And thank you. You guys have been having awesome discussions about that. Uh, I wanted to give special props to uh, to Flamifer for writing a very long, thoughtful post about that and and kind of continuing uh, uh, keeping the conversation going on that thread. Um, that was um, uh, uh, Flamifer. Thanks for that. That was really excellent. That whole discussion was great. Um, so uh, uh, that you know, thanks for your guys' thoughts there. And I don't think I'm going to be able to do to do justice to that whole discussion. So I definitely recommend people uh, check that out on our uh, discussion boards. But um, let's back up for one second and remember the context here, right? We've just been talking about Tom Bombadil and getting down to figuring out what has to be done, right? Um, remember, I was suggesting that the Tom Bombadil discussion first initially emerges as basically asking the question, whom can we trust to carry the ring at all, right? Whom can we trust to hold the ring, um, even for a short time? And then uh, we've kind of set that question as so having rejected Bombadil as either a temporary or a permanent home for the ring, um, uh, or holder for the ring, perhaps I should say, um, then what? What are the options, right? And so Gorfindel is the one who's kind of trying to bring, bring these things into focus here. He's kind of the voice of sense, the voice of reason here. Then if the ring cannot be kept from him forever by strength, said Gorfindel, two things only remain for us to attempt, to send it over the sea or to destroy it. Gorfindel says those are the only two options. But Gandalf has revealed to us that we cannot destroy it by any craft that we here possess, said Elrond. Um, now, first of all, a note on this, and I think, Flamifer, I think you were talking about this, and I, I agree with your um, uh, assessment. Uh, of course, first to point out that Gandalf didn't reveal that. That never came up previous to this in the council. Um, but Flamifer's reading seems to me uh, very sensible, um, and that was... That was revealed to them indirect. Gandalf did say that, but he said that, you'll remember, to Frodo in Bag End. Um, and so presumably that either came up indirectly, that is, when Frodo was relating this conversation uh, and his, his story, it came up uh, in that context. Or perhaps it was even discussed at that time and Gandalf went over that ground again with them, uh, potentially. Because um, you'll remember... That's one of the parts of the council that got skimmed over, that we did not hear the full narration of. We did not hear Frodo narrating in full his story that we already read, right? And so I do agree that it seems, well, I was going to say likely, not even likely. I think it seems almost certain that that must be what Elrond is talking about, right? And of course, in saying this, as, uh, you know, a couple people have been reminding us, um, we uh, um, we don't um, we don't have um, as several people have been reminding us, Tolkien is having these people speaking to us as readers as well as to each other, right? And so we are being reminded here of something that Gandalf told us as readers back in chapter two, right? But there's every reason to think, knowing they went over that material in Frodo's narration, which was skimmed over in this chapter, that the rest of the council has been briefed on this as well. So I assume that that must be what Elrond means. I can't think of anything else that Elrond could possibly mean by that, because certainly in Gandalf's lengthy narration, which he said he was keeping short, um, that 
he never mentioned that and that never came up. Uh, so, um, okay. Um, now, moving on. And they who dwell beyond the sea would not receive it. For good or ill, it belongs to Middle-earth. It is for us, us who still dwell here to deal with it. Okay. Why? As far as how Elrond knows, that was one point of debate that you guys were discussing. I don't see any reason to believe that Elrond is here. So, uh, I think I agree with Flamifer's, um, with Flamifer's initial, um, I think I agree with Flamifer's initial breakdown of the options there. That either he doesn't know this at all and is just saying this in order to bring them around to the conclusion he and Gandalf have already agreed to and want to bring them to, which I agree, it's a slightly cynical reading of this, but I agree is a theoretical possibility. Um, or uh, he has received some message, right? Like he has received some active communication, some dream, some message by eagle or moth or whatever. Uh, he has received some positive indication or communication uh, from the Valar, which leads him to believe uh, that they're not going to receive the ring. Um, or he is intuiting it. Like, it is a conclusion that he is drawing, rather than a piece of information that he has been told. Um, and I definitely agree um, with Flamifer's assertion that it's almost certainly the third. I don't think it's the first. I don't think he's faking it. Um, I don't think that Elrond would say that. They who dwell beyond the sea would not receive it. I do not think Elrond would say that if he did not have reason to believe that it was true. Um, but at the same time, I do not... Th and anyway, sorry, one brief comment on that. Remember the emphasis that we laid on Saruman's words reported by Gandalf to the White Council before, right? When Saruman states with clear authority, right? He invokes his own considerable authority as the white wizard to assert that the ring has rolled down the river to the sea. He knows that this is so. And he can't know it by observation, right? I mean, he can't. Like, that's not really possible. Um, so he seems to be... Um, he is there using that statement to manipulate the council on the basis of an assertion that, you know, sort of implies potentially inside knowledge um, of what Iluvatar or the Valar are doing, or at least a very strong and kind of convicting intuition that it must be so and that he's he can state it with confidence. And he was doing that in order to lie to them, in order to mislead them, Right. There's no way Elrond is... Elrond would be doing the same thing, right? If Elrond didn't know that that were true and is just kind of, you know, making that up in order to manipulate the council into doing what he wants, he would be doing exactly what Saruman did. And there's no way Elrond is going to do that, right? I mean, that would be a big deal. Um, and it kind of goes back in part to conversations we've had before about how lying is a really big deal in those days. You know, in our world... We're in our culture. We're accustomed to this. We're accustomed to the fact there's like you can assume that somebody might be lying to you without feeling that you're giving them a deadly insult. Right. I mean, that's normal in our society and that's much less normal 
in many ancient societies, and it's much less norm normal in Middle Earth. Here, you know, it's possible from a modern perspective, maybe, to kind of talk yourself into a position where you're thinking, like, that that kind of gamesmanship, you know, that kind of manipulation of, of, of affairs might be a, an acceptable uh, uh, tactic, you know, for trying to accomplish an appropriate and good end. That is not okay, because exactly, JJ, you would have to argue, you would be arguing, ultimately, that the ends justify the means, right? And we've seen that's a problem, right? Uh, Tolkien has said very clearly, Saruman and Gandalf's story makes it very clear that that is, um, it's not just a slippery slope, that's free fall, right? I mean, that's what, that's what falling looks like uh, when you start doing that. That's not just the first step. Um, that's the actual fall going on. Um, so, um, uh, anyway, that's, that's, so, so I, I strongly, heartily reject the idea that Elrond is just blowing smoke to manipulate the council. Uh, and of course, Flamifer, I'm not suggesting that you were implying that, only that you were trying very sensibly to articulate potential right, uh, uh, interpretations in order to examine each one. Um, so if we can dismiss that one, then we have... Um, he knows, like he's, he has received some communication, or he is intuiting. Um, and again, I see that there is... Um, there is no reason to believe that he has received communication. Like it's, I can't say it's impossible. Um, I can't, um, I can't absolutely rule it out, but I would be very surprised. I would be very surprised if that turned out to be the case. Um, and I'd be very surprised because that's, that doesn't happen. Not like that. Not like, I'm going to send you a, a, a message like I'm get, like, you know, like you're, you're getting a text from Manway, right? He doesn't send texts. He's not going to send a messenger coming in saying, Elrond, at your next council, let me give you a tip. You know, here's the here's the Valinorian perspective on this. Right. So move forward with the suggestion like it's not it's not what happens. Right. It's not how it works. Um, when uh <laughs> I'm, I'm, um, that doesn't mean that there have been no actions, that there is no, but like interpretation, uh, is going to be needed, right? In my opinion, the clearest intervention, the clearest and most explicit, biggest intervention of the Valar in the Lord of the Rings, is the wind from the sea and the return of the king. I am 100% convinced that that wind from the sea is an intervention of the Valar. But, um, and it's perfectly legitimate to interpret that, you know, to say, okay, what are we figuring out here, right? What message are we getting? Uh, if you remember ahead, even the witch king is thinking in that direction, right? The Witch King is noticing he who just said, this is my hour, right, is um, doing some recalculations <laughs> in his head, 
once the crow goes off and the uh, horns start blowing and the wind from the sea picks up and he's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to recalibrate here, right? Maybe it's not yet my hour. Maybe there's something else going on in this hour, uh, that I should, uh, that I should get involved with. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's, 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 uh, interpretation of those kinds of signals is always involved, um, just about always involved. Um, and, uh, yeah, exactly. Dima. I think the problem was it was a daylight savings issue, right? He got the hour wrong. He thought it was his hour, but actually it had been his hour, the hour before, and he missed it. Like, uh, the irony, it's so sad. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah. Um, so, now, I agree with you. Several of you guys are mentioning there are messages from the Valar, right? Like, there's Gandalf right there, right? Yes, the sending of the Astari is a pretty clear message uh, from the Valar, right? Even Gorfindel, some of you were talking about Gorfindel as well. Like, shouldn't Gor, you know, mightn't you want to consult Gorfindel on this? Well, first of all, I bet Elrond has consulted Gorfindel on this already. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, he's, he's, uh, he's part of that picture too. And somebody, I, it was a while back, but I, so I forget who said this, but one of you guys said a, a while back, um, even the information that they've received here today, like Elrond's got to know, right? There is somebody in this room who has received an actual message from Valinor. Right? Every reason to think you've received a direct message from Valinor. Who's received a direct message from Valinor? Boromir received a direct message from Valinor. Right? I mean, they, there, there has been a dream in which a message was conveyed. Right? And yeah, exactly. Exactly. Boromir received a message. Um, and, you know, so... Elrond is going to be taking that in too. So like this, this seems to be, um, the way Elrond works in general. I'm going to come back to this because I think we're going to see another example of exactly this kind of thing, right? Um, later on in the council, uh, towards the very end of the council chapter. Um, but, uh, Flamifer, to use the word that you were, um, talking about, um, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the question of, um, you know, who, like the message and what exactly is going to, about intuiting, intuiting was your word, uh, Flamifer. Um, I think that's right, but I'm not sure I'd go with intuiting. I think it's more than that. Um, intuition makes it sound like he just has a feeling, right? Like he, um, um, You know, he's just like, something tells me that this is what we should do. Like, that's kind of what to say that he intuits it sounds like. But I think it's more than that. Um, insight Freebird, that might be a better way to think about it. Um, I think it's um, I think it's mostly about interpretation. I think it's mostly about... Now... I feel embarrassed saying this because, of course, you will see there's all kind of uh, reason to think that I'm saying this for reasons of personal bias. Um, 
But it seems to me what Elrond is doing is making observations, interpreting those observations, and drawing big picture conclusions based on those observations and interpretations. In other words, kind of exactly like I argue we should read literature, which is why I feel embarrassed saying it, because it sounds like I'm like, Elrond is just like me, right? Which is uh, an embarrassing thing to say and means I'm probably wrong. Um, But nevertheless, it seems to me like this is sort of how he's doing these things, right? He, 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 He sees and he hears and he perceives all of these things and he, um, looks at the big picture, right? He, he perceives the big picture sort of inductively, right? Drawing conclusions from all of these things. Uh, and you're right, Ray, much more sensible to say that I'm just like Elrond, <laughs> which also kind of seems a little bit, um, awkward, right? You know, but anyway, yeah. So <laughs> any, anyhow, um, I, uh, I, do, uh, it does seem like that's more or less his process and that that's kind of how it works. Um, even when you look at Gandalf and Gandalf's own, there was a lot of intuition involved in Gandalf, in Gandalf's figuring out that Bilbo's ring was the ring of power, but it's also a lot of, I'm going to sit back and watch. This is one of the reasons why the good guys are always sitting back and observing, not because they're lazy, right? Not because they're unmotivated. And it's not because they're, you know, they're like, they, they can't think of any proactive things to do. It's because their whole attitude towards the world is different. Like bad guys, bad guys don't do that. Bad guys don't sit back and observe and then figure out what would be best to do. Bad guys first establish their own vision for what they want to achieve, and then they figure out the most efficient means to bring about the end that they want. That's what we saw Saruman doing in his conversation with Gandalf, and that's what we can also see Sauron doing, right? They make a plan, or they they set a goal, they make a plan, and they work straight towards it. The good guys, they're different. Right. The good guys. And I agree, Tony, especially immortal good guys or at least extremely long lived good guys um, do things differently. Right. And the way they do things is to sit back because they're not making their own plans. They're not trying to remake the world in their image, according to their vision. They're kind of waiting for their marching orders. They're seeing what would be best to do. What is supposed to happen or to quote Galadriel as she will say what she what does she want to happen what should be shall be is what she says she wants right and that's I think a pretty good summary of the good guy perspective in Tolkien's world so first step one is not make a plan step one is try to figure out what should be right Try to see if you can underst- if you can perceive the drift of things, right? What is, what, how is providence unfolding, right? What are things leading towards? Um, and um, uh, so, yeah, that's, um, that's what I think we see Elrond doing here. So when Elrond says, they who dwell beyond the sea would not receive it, does he have, you know, was he sent a memo? No, I don't think he was. But is he speaking with 
Conviction here? Yes. He's speaking with conviction based on thousands of years of observations of how things work and of how the Valar operate. Did he meet the Valar? Yeah, sure. I'm sure you know, he met he met some folks, right? I mean, he was there at the War of Wrath. You know, he 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 met some of the folks from Valinor and Gorfindel has presumably met more. Um, but um, but again, it's I think that has probably told him less than his observation over the millennia and figuring that out. Is it possible, Tony asks, that Elrond is using his ring to assist him in his interpretation? I doubt it. I doubt it. And here's the reason I doubt that, Tony. I doubt that because, as we are told, the Elven Rings have a different power. And if I had to guess, if I had to guess, I think the Elven Rings of Power, I think there's plenty of reason to believe the Elven Rings of Power were a bad idea. Not just that they didn't pan out, um, but that they were a bad idea. They were a step down the wrong road. I think that Celebrimbor screwed up. I really don't think they were a good idea. Um, yes, they were untouched by Sauron. No, they're not themselves corrupted and they don't corrupt, corrupt the wielder. But I think, yeah, exactly, Ray. It's a family trait. I think Celebrimbor was showing his lineage uh, in that choice Um, because the power of the Elven Rings is to preserve, is to keep everything unstained. In other words, it's you have a vision of how things should be and you put forth your power to make it happen, right? Now, the thing is benevolent. The thing is good. It's nice, right? Everybody likes Lothlorien. Well, except for the people afraid of it. But everybody who's been there likes Lothlorien. Everybody likes Rivendell, right? There's nothing wrong with that. The vision is a good vision. It's a happy vision. It's a benevolent vision. But, okay, Boromir doesn't. But he's never been there, JJ, when he says that. Um, uh, when he, when Celebrim, so like, so like, like the whole action of saying, I want to make the world around me like this. And... I'm going to find a mechanism by which I can put forth my power more efficaciously to bring that about. I'm, that's bad. That's a bad sign. That is not a good step. Um, that sounds to me like step one or maybe more than step one down the road, down Sauron's road, right? And of course, the fact that going down that road made him vulnerable to Sauron's infiltration, right? That Sauron was able to manipulate him suggests to me that I am correct to conclude that. Um, so, uh, so yeah, Mornowin, yeah, it is in a sense moving against the tide of the music. Now, I didn't bring up the music of the Ainur, uh, Mornowin, but that's exactly what I was thinking about when I was talking about observing, seeing what should be, right? It's like if you live long enough, like Elrond, and you can observe enough things, both in history and in as history is unfolding in the world around you, it's almost like you can kind of attune your ear to the music of the Ainur. You can see how things are supposed to go, right? You can pick up these motifs, right? 
that come up in the music of the Ainur. And you can get a sense of, here's how things work. And if you've been at it for as long as Elrond has, you can do so with um, a certain amount of authority. Now, Shaft asks on Twitter, is it foresight or forehearing? See, I don't think it's the same phenomenon as foresight. I really don't. Um, when a foretelling comes upon somebody, that's more like, that seems like an inspiration of some kind. That's more like I've received a message. You don't know from where, right? But, but that seems to be a little bit more direct, I would say. Not the kind of like larger conclusions that, um, uh, that, that Elrond is coming to, you know, this, this kind of, this kind of conclusion, um, seeing patterns go gone through. That's exactly, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Matt. The, the fact that, the fact that what the Elvish Rings was trying to accomplish, like, again, I think problem number one is that they're trying to accomplish something like that, right? That's already, no matter how nice it is, it's a, it's a red flag, right? But Matt, I agree with you exactly what they're trying to accomplish, which is fundamentally stasis. Let's, let's maintain the world unchanged. Well, that ain't the plan. It's pretty clear, right? It's pretty clear that if your goal is to stop time and the process of change in the world, that you are swimming against the current. And it's a pretty strong and pretty obvious current, okay? So um, can you convince yourself that that's what should be? It's an uphill battle. You can do it. You can rationalize it, right? You can rationalize anything. Um, and the ring will try to help you with that, of course. That's how one of the ways it operates. But but I agree. Anyway, yeah, absolutely. That's um, um, That's not a good look. It's not a good thing. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, uh, Deschwab, we'll talk about gardening later, M much later, but we'll talk, <laughs> we'll talk about it later. Um, Johannes, I wonder that that's a really wonderful point, And I've never articulated that, but I'm so glad you said that. Johannes says you get the feeling that the elves are not too proud of the rings since they refuse to speak of them. Yes. Yes. You're saying that makes me realize that I've always kind of wondered that. Yes, there's a secrecy thing. Like, yeah, they don't want to talk about it in public because it's a dead secret. Who has the rings? But as I've said before, it's the worst kept secret in Middle Earth. Like, come on. I mean, one of them is a pretty good secret, right? Gandalf's ring. That one is a that one's a well-kept secret. But again, I mean, every moron in Middle-earth who knows anything about the Rings of Power must know that Elrond and Galadriel each have one, right? I mean, come on. So it's not... Um, I, I've i always been resistant to the idea that people are like, no one must never know, so don't tell the deep, dark secret that Elrond and Galadriel have Elvish Rings. So, Johannes, I wonder. I wonder if part of the we-never-talk-about-that thing is involved with... Um, you know, shame might be too strong, right? It might be too strong. I don't know that I would go so far as shame. Um, but, um, 
but yeah, I, I, I really think um, that they, when they talk about that, they, it may be one of the reasons they don't have to talk about them. And I think I agree exactly with Tony there. The rings might not, the rings themselves might not be tainted by Sauron, but the whole ring project is tainted by Sauron. And I, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, uh, yeah. So, and at the very least, Cook of Wooten, Cook of Wooten Minor, I agree. At the very least, they're cautious in talking about them, right? You don't want to, you don't want people talking about them. You don't want anybody talking about them because nothing good happens when people talk about them, right? I mean, nothing good can possibly come of anybody talking about them. Now, yes, Gandalf's ring seems to be different, but of course, exactly as Rachel Port points out on YouTube, no, Tolkien didn't really know that Gandalf had a ring at this point. Um, that Gandalf's ring is retconned in later on. There's no reason to think that. Um, uh, there's no reason to think that Tolkien knows um, that Gandalf has a ring yet. Um, he 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 doesn't discover that uh, for some time. Um, and when he does discover it, he seems interested. Uh, in making um, differentiating that ring, um, that the, the the nature of that ring seems a little bit different from the others, um, but we'll come back to that even later. Then we'll come back to the other question. But um, yeah, yeah, um, exactly, Ray. It was a super well hidden secret. That's how well hidden that secret was, right? They didn't even tell Tolkien about it until later on. So there you go. Um, there you go. And interesting, Mad Violinist says, say rather that perhaps the nature of its bestowal may, makes its effect different. And you know, Mad Violinist, I would, um, I would, I would add to that. I think you're right. And I would add to that the recipient as well. Gandalf isn't an elf, noticeably, right? He's not an elf. His desire is not for stasis. That's not his goal. And one might perhaps think that Kierden suspected this. That Kierden himself is a kind of hero of giving up the ring, right? Uh, like Bilbo uh, before him, right? Uh, well, after him. I know technically Kierden did it first, but as far as our discovery of it, it's uh, much sooner that we discover Bilbo doing it. Um, but uh, yes, I know, Tomas, that Gandalf is an elf with a staff. That's what his name means. Uh, but uh, Gandalf, elf in a very much vaguer uh, and more Norse sense. Um, and the Norse certainly use the word elf uh, pretty generically uh, to mean all kinds of things. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, yeah, his, um, um, his, so there's lots of reasons to believe that the ring is going to operate differently and interact differently with Gandalf as wielder, both because of the circumstances of its, uh, of its reception, of its being given to him, Mad Violinist, I think that's wonderful, and also his own nature and his own mission, right? He's, um, He's going to he's going to take and he's he's going to do different things with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, anyway. OK. Um, so. Um, all right. Where does this bring us? Oh, yeah. Back to Elrond. OK. So if we're in agreement about the kind of 
intuition slash conclusion slash perception or, um, you know, overall kind of like attunement to the music and to how the Valar operate in Middle-earth, if that's the basis of Elrond's statement, which is what I certainly think is true, we still have to deal with the substance of his statement. Given, accepting that he knows what he knows and that that's how he knows it, um, or at least has concluded it, perhaps, let's more conservatively say, there's still then the question of why does he, why is this true? Why will they who dwell beyond the sea not receive it? Uh, now, again, you guys had some excellent discussion about that on the discussion boards, which I really liked. Um, JJ, I wanted to mention your um, comment in particular because I really, um, I really liked that. Um, and actually, JJ, maybe you could rearticulate it a little bit so that I make sure I don't mess it up. Um, because this came in the context of discussion when a lot of people were saying... When you know some of the people in the on, in the in the discussion were saying, the Valar aren't. There, you know, there was there was a parallel. I forget who it was who was making the parallel to parenting, right? The Valar, like it's in the interest of the, you know, like they 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 want people to take care of their own problems. Their goal is not to come in and solve every problem, um, and um, I believe so. JJ, if I'm remembering your point correctly. Um, what J.J. was arguing is that basically there's a parallel here, just as Iluvatar has delegated the, the creation of the world, basically, to the sub-creation. He's delegated the creation of the world to the sub-creation of his creatures, right? He, first he makes the Valar, the offspring of his thought, and then he ha- has the music come through them, and they're improvising. They are they are putting themselves into their own music, right? They are doing their thing. It is their own sub-creative powers that are being used in the music. And in the end, of course, the music is, is just what Iluvatar wanted. Um, so Iluvatar, but he genuinely delegates. And what happens when things start going wrong in the music, right? The discord starts happening pretty early on in the music. What does Iluvatar do? He does not stop the orchestra. Right. He does not, you know, push the mute button on Melkor in order to, you know, remove the discord. Um, No, that's not what he does. He lets it happen. He lets it happen. He lets them even letting some of the other of the Ainur follow along with him and the war of sound. He does counter it right with the new themes. But he doesn't until the very end of the music, raise his hands and stop the music with that one final chord, right? He seems to have genuinely delegated, I'm going to let you guys figure this out, right? I want you guys to figure this out. Does it mean he doesn't care? No. Does it mean he takes no part in it? No. Does it mean he doesn't, it doesn't matter to him what the results are? No. He tells them at the end, nobody can alter the music in my despite. Nobody can make this music turn out the way I didn't want it to turn out. My, I, what, no matter what you do, it is going to end up being a tributary to its glory. A tributary, meaning a river that flows into the sea, right? So 
any actions that any of them, including Melkor, take in the music is going to be like a river that flows down into the ocean of the glory of Iluvatar, the glory of his work, right? That's what's going to happen, right? Um, what course the river takes, legitimately up to you. But at the end of the day, that river is going to end up being a tributary to the glory of the whole, right? Um, for those of you who think that this abnegates free will, I have a book for you. <laughs> the Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. It's all in Boethius. Um, but, um, okay, so that's step one, right, that Iluvatar did with the Ainur. JJ, your argument, as I'm recalling it, was uh, that we see the Valar doing the same thing to some extent with the children of Iluvatar. Um, that that's what Elrond is perceiving. Especially when the Valar have removed themselves, not only separated themselves by the ocean, right? Valinor was already removed uh, and a, a, a sizable obstacle placed between Valinor and Middle-earth at the time of the hiding of Valinor, right? Uh, way back in the First Age. But of course, at the end of the Second Age, with, at the time of the downfall of Numenor, Valinor is taken out entirely, and it's only connected. There's just like an umbilical cord connecting, right? The straight road connecting Valinor, the true west, and the rest of the world, right? Now, it's still part of Arda, but it's detached, right? Um, from this point, it seems that... Um, uh, From this point, it seems uh, that um, you could argue... So, JJ, again, if I'm following your argument correctly, um, that uh, the Valar are basically, have from that point, been following in the, in the footsteps of Iluvatar himself. That they're recapitulating, in a sense, something very like what Iluvatar did. It is for us who still dwell here to deal with it. Why? Because the Valar don't care? No, the Valar care. The Valar totally care. Are the Valar? Does that mean the Valar are going to take no hand? No. Again, but it's just like Iluvatar in the music, right? Did Iluvatar not care about the Discord? No, he cared. But that doesn't mean he's he's not going to go in and cancel Morgoth. He doesn't do it, right? He lets him go. He lets him do his thing. And by doing his thing, his thing ends up bringing about beauty that none of them had ever conceived. Well, except Iluvatar, perhaps, right? Um, and so, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, JJ, I buy that. I buy that parallel. I buy that parallel, that the Valar are not gonna intervene directly. And I have to say... I'm trying to be a little bit cautious here on the theological grounds. But it seems to me, when I hear Tolkien readers talking about this kind of question, it seems to me that there is a great deal of oversimplification involved here. Like, I hear people asking, why don't the Valar take a hand, right? Why do they, why are they so hands off, 
right? I mean, there's Sauron. He's the big bad guy, right? And then you've got the big good guys who are, you know, doing nothing. They're just remote and they don't care. Well, what does caring look like, right? And Valor, yeah, it's just like the eagle's question that always pops up. It's, it's, it's rather like that. Um, they're not going to do that. They're not just going to swoop in, right, whether by the medium of the eagles or, or not, and say, yeah, it's okay, we'll, just, we'll take care of this for you, right? It's true, apparently, they're not going to do that. But does that mean they don't care? So when I talk about oversimplification, the impression that I often get from people, like, the question I often want to ask in response and I rarely have time to have this deep a discussion about it with people who say these things or ask these questions, like during Q&As and that kind of thing, um, is what I want to say in response is, like, what would you accept? Like, what would you look for? What would convince you that the Valar cared, that the Valar were taking a hand? What would you want, right? Um, what would you take as evidence that they cared? Would it have to be, you know, the angel, you know, the angelic ministers, right, of, of, of you know, like the, the eagles in the form, you know, Thorondor himself returned to Middle-earth, uh, swooping down, taking the ring and uh, putting it into uh, the fiery mountain and saying, you know, like, is that, is that and, and nothing else? Nothing short of that? Um, so, um, you know, it's, um, right, Tolkien's laying the smack down on Sauron. Exactly, exactly. Um so, yeah, and Frumius Bujum, you're completely right that things didn't work out so well the last couple of times they stepped in to rule directly. Like, it's ish, there's issues. Like, continents sink when that happens. Let's, let's, let's be frank, right? They have, a, they, have a, they have a history of breaking continents uh, when that occurs. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I... I I think there's a great deal of middle ground between that kind of direct, obvious, palpable, you know, Valar and gigantic figures bestriding the land and, you know, hauling Sauron off by his shirt collar. You know, like it's it's there's a very wide scope between that on the one hand and the Valar doing nothing on the other hand. There's a, a huge area of operations there. And do I think there's plenty of reason for... Um, the do I think there's plenty of reason for the uh, to think that the Valar are in fact operating within that range? Oh yeah, yeah. I think there's lots of evidence to suggest that. Um, so uh, and absolutely, uh, uh, Morinitar. Yes, the Astari are a perfect example of the Valar helping the people of Middle Earth. They absolutely are. Um, exactly. Exactly. The sending of the Astari is one of the most explicit examples. I mean, if you want evidence of them being somewhere in that middle ground, it's sitting right in the room, right? Gandalf is there. Um, and that is the plainest, most clear um, reason. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Um, Tony, exactly. 
that would be a deus ex machina. Like the whole eagles taking the ring to Mordor would be a deus ex machina. And there's a big difference. So deus ex machina, for those of you, just to make sure everyone's on the same page with that description um, or with that phrase, deus ex machina is a Latin phrase which means God out of the machine, which literally refers to a convention of some bad classical, like Latin classical uh, dramas which tended to end things up by having a, a, one of the gods swoop in and make everything right. Like it would, you know, the, the drama would move forward and it would get to a point where everything looked like it was going to end horribly and there was just no way out of it. Almost like, almost as if the playwright had painted himself into a corner and then a god descends and changes everything. Like changes all of the circumstances that are make every, making everything horrible, and then everything because of that happens, everything works out fine. Like that's that's kind of the classic uh, concept of the Deus ex machina. So people use that phrase to describe that kind of like heavy-handed intervention. Um, understanding the difference between Deus ex machina on the one hand and eucatastrophe on the other hand is really essential to understanding the spirit of Tolkien's world and of Tolkien's writing. There's similarities between Deus Ex Machina on the one hand and um, Eucatastrophe on the other hand, but they are very, very important differences. And I agree, Tim Belf, in some sense, Deus Ex Machina is almost like, um, uh, almost like the opposite uh, of, um, uh, of um, Eucatastrophe. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Reader Elrond, you are correct uh, that this issue, uh, this does connect. There, that's why uh, exactly what you just mentioned, Reader, Reader Elrond, uh, is exactly what, why I said at the, you know, a, a few minutes back uh, that I, I'm, I'm trying to be cautious talking about this on theological grounds. Um, that's what I was referring to, because you're absolutely right. It, um, it is grounded. I mean, ultimately the parallel to this, like this comes down to the same basic question. Why does God permit evil to happen? Right. And all of this stuff from the music of the Ainur, especially the music of the Ainur on forward and all of the things which parallel the music of the Ainur as we move forward is kind of Tolkien's answer to that question, or at least his expression of the answer that he felt he received to that question from within his tradition. Um, and so again, I don't, I'm, I'm trying not to, I don't want to, you know, I don't get up in anybody's business about this. Um, but, um, uh, but I, I do think that trying to understand as far as the Valar and middle earth are concerned, trying to understand to, to make sure that we're all seeing that very large middle ground, that very large middle field, uh, between doing nothing and just taking over and solving all the problems that is clearly, I think, where things um, uh, where things live. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so OK. Um, so back to then the specific question. It helps us perhaps to understand his statement. It is for us who still dwell here to deal with it. Why would the Valar think that? Um, for good or ill, it belongs to Middle-earth. This is a Middle-earth issue, and they're not going to take it over. So basically, one way to paraphrase Elrond's response 
to Gorfindel's suggestion that they send it over the sea is that um, one way one way to paraphrase his suggestion is that would be us attempting to force a deus ex machina, basically. Um, that would be a deus ex machina, except initiated by us, right? For us to go over with the ring and say, um, here, we brought this to you guys. Can you guys take care of this? This is really, you know, this is above our pay grade, so we thought we'd hand this in to you. Can you take care of this problem? We've got a serious Sauron problem. Now, again, there are some people who say, but hang on, isn't Sauron a Valinor problem? I mean, he's one of the Maiar, right? I mean, he's one of their order um, who's gone bad and is over there tormenting the world. Why are they sitting on their hands over in Valinor while the bad guy who is one of their order is over there in Middle-earth causing problems? If he's, he's, he, shouldn't he be their problem? Right? I mean, I understand why they don't come in and intervene every time you know, like, Bill Fernie is mean to somebody, right? But like, surely Sauron, he's their problem. Isn't he their problem? No, he's not their problem. Um, he's a Middle-earth problem. And they can handle him. And they do handle him. Right? What's going to happen? They are going to deal with their problem. How are they going to deal with their problem? By the means to deal with the problem that have, by serendipity, fallen in their laps. Here we are, and here is the ring. What shall we do with it? Right? Many of you in the thread were talking about uh, how the Valar have already apparently been at work in bringing them together there at the council. Right? Not only the more obvious intervention, apparently, of the Valar through Boromir's dream. I, I know it's Faramir's dream primarily, but Boromir did have it, so I'm, he's the one who said it, so I'm giving him credit for now. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, so not only through that, but even just, you know, Elrond's note at the top of the council called, I say, though I have not called you, right? Strangers from distant lands. Um, so, um, okay, ooh, Ashnaz, let me get back to that question in a second. Let me finish what I'm saying, and then I'll try to get back to that. That's, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, so the Valor have already been active in bringing the council together, but of course it's more than that, right? The, the way that Providence has brought about. They've been tracing the provenance of the ring. Remember, that's been an op, you know, we've, we've talked for months and months now about the whole discussion, attempting to answer the question, how can we know that this is the ring of power? How can we be sure? Right? Galdor's question to Gandalf. Um, and as they've been discussing the provenance of the ring, there's been another thing that have, that has become more and more clear. Right. And that is, this is a remarkable thing, right, that has happened uh, and which seems to defy coincidence. Right. This is not just, um, there's, uh, there's more than luck going on here. Right. Um, you know, we are fine fellows uh, and people might be very fond of us, but we're only, you know, 
little people in a large world after all, right? This adventure has not just been arranged uh, for our personal benefit. Uh, and of course, I'm, I, I'm quoting Gandalf from the end of The Hobbit to Bilbo there. Um, it's not just luck, right? So is there already a pattern that Elrond can point to? Yeah, yeah, there is, right? Okay, it's not just that... So when he says it is for us to dwell, who dwell here to deal with it, he's not saying the Valar have washed their hands of this, right? The Valar are like, peace out. You guys have your own problems. I'm going, I'm going to go have a cup of tea, right? You guys have fun with that ring business, right? Don't bother us with that. That's not what he's saying at all. I think that what he's saying, what he's setting up, what he's pointing to is it's for us who still dwell here to deal with it. In other words, they have given us instructions if we can read them. They have pointed us in the direction. They have provided us the opportunity. They've, they're, it's, it's happening, people. It's already happened that we have come together. We've been, even some of us, by like these explicit, you know, poetic messages and dreams and whatnot, like it's already happening. Okay, so for us to now turn and send the ring across the sea would be like an abdication, right? They've given us all the tools. They've given us, and then for us to say, nah, now can you just take care of this? We, we're, we are going to turn away from the task that has been set for us, basically, right? Um, and I think that that's what Elrond is pointing towards when he says it is for us who still dwell here to deal with it. And I would add, he's still being very gentle. He could say more here. He could say it is for us who still dwell here to deal with it. And I think it's pretty clear what they're suggesting we should do. He does not yet say that. Right. Um, now, again, he's implying it. He's pointing to it. Glorfindel has just said, either send it over the sea or destroy it. And he said, not send it over the sea. We should do something else. <laughs> right? Plan B, right? Option door number two. Um, clearly, I think it's clear that that's what Elrond thinks. I think it's clear that that's what he's trying to bring everyone to. I agree. We've been saying for a long time, I think that Gandalf and Elrond both know that where this whole conversation is headed is towards Frodo being the ring bearer to take the ring to Mordor. Gandalf has foreseen it since the parlor in Bag End. But, um, uh, but Elrond is still being very gentle in laying that out. He still seems to want... It's almost like he himself is again recapitulating what, um, uh, what the Valar themselves <clears throat> were doing. He, he wants the whole council to see it for themselves. Now, Ashna, it's going to come back to your question. What is the difference between the Council of Elrond sending the ring to Valinor and Eärendil taking the Silmaril to Valinor? Um, great question. Uh, so, what I would say to that uh, primarily um, is that um, uh, what I would say to that primarily is um, that it's a different situation because the Silmaril isn't the, pro isn't the problem, right? I mean, it's not that it's not creating problems or that problems aren't being created around the Silmaril, but it's not the problem. <clears throat> um, 
and uh, nor is it the key to destroying Morgoth. Like, the Silmaril enables Eärendil to get there, um, but it is it is the Silmaril isn't the thing that has that something has to be done about. Um, nor is it any part of the mechanism for doing it. Really, um, so there's a kind of parallel there, but I don't think that they're the same. Um, Mornowin, what a wonderful question! I wonder what the Council of Elrond would have been like if Frodo had gotten to Rivendell earlier when Gandalf wanted him to. Well, here, um, uh, here, Mornowin is a wonderful additional point, right? Um, or, or rather, a wonderful. Um, additional mm, piece of evidence or bunch of pieces of evidence, right? Um, <laughs> to Gandalf on the top of Orthanc, the delay seemed like a disaster, right? I mean, any delay. His only hope was that Frodo had left in time, right? If Frodo doesn't leave in time, everything is ruined. Everything is going to be horrible. Um, and then it turns out he gets to the Shire and discovers the worst has happened, right? But Mornowin, what we see, don't we? Not only does it turn out that that's not a disaster, it turns out that all of those horrible things happening, leading to the delay and the near catching of them by the Black Riders and everything, turns out to have been tributary to the glory of the whole, doesn't it? Isn't it a good thing? that it worked out this way. Um, Boromir wouldn't have been there, right? Legolas wouldn't have been there. Uh, would even glow, was even glowing there early enough? You know, I don't know. I mean, the, 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 the council, it wasn't time. It was not the time for this council, right? It was not, had, now, could Frodo have hung out for a while comfortably for a few months? Sure, yeah, no, of course that could have happened. Um, but again, even think about the things that Frodo's journey Unfolded The meeting with Tom Bombadil, even that alone, the meeting with Tom Bombadil and the encounter with the Barrow Whites, which Elrond, you know, was talking about in relation to the important squirrel question and stuff like that earlier on. Um, I mean, think about the things that we were talking about with that and how that has kind of informed his understanding of what's going on here. Right. Um, that wouldn't have happened. Had Frodo left in July He'd have just taken the road. He'd never have gone through the old forest in a hundred years, right? There's no way he would have done that. He'd have just gone traipsing along the road, had probably a perfectly boring journey um, all the way to Rivendell, uh, and um, uh, and think of what else wouldn't have happened, right? They wouldn't have had the Barrow Blades. The Witch King wouldn't have been killed, right? I mean, you can you can go forward and see all of the network of things that would have been different had the bad series of events not happened, right? So, yep, it's all part of the plan. Um, yes, Tony, you could even say that the loss of the ring by Isildur was providential. I agree. I agree. Um, yep, yep. Um, good, good. Okay, sorry, I know I'm skipping. There's so many comments that people are making, and I wish I could comment on all of them. Uh, you guys have been awesome here. Um, but it's, I, I'm, I'm trying to skim briefly through. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, see, Tarloniel, Tarloniel says, poor Gorfindel coming up with plan A, B, and C and getting them all shot down. Um, you know, Tarloniel, I'm not sure. 
that Glorfindel isn't being Elrond's straight man here. I'm really not. I uh, uh, I don't think that that's. You know, I said I w- I do not think that Elrond would attempt to to, to you know uh, to deceive or to to, to manipulate the council. Um, do I think that Elrond would not, or that Glorfindel, sorry, would not um, step in and uh, even knowingly set up the conclusion? Yeah, and I'm I would be I would not be surprised by that. What all Gorfindel is doing is articulating different possibilities, right? Different suggestions. Um, now, I do think that Gorfindel's next suggestion, which I have aspirations to get to in just a moment, um, that does seem to me a genuine suggestion by Gorfindel, and so therefore I don't think he is just setting Elrond up for the conclusions that he knows Elrond is trying to get to. Um, but, um, but yeah, all Gorfindel is doing is articulating, here are the options, right? Let's think our way through each one of these. Um, so I don't think he's getting shot down exactly, but... Um, yeah, okay. Um, and good, JJ, yes, if Gandalf had spirited away Frodo, would the other hobbits have tagged along? Yeah, what if Merry and Pippin hadn't ended, ended up coming? Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, I agree, Rowan. Uh, so Rowan says it worked out well, except for that stabbing thing. Well, but the, does the st- I mean, Frodo did have a stabbing problem on the way, but even that, you know, will that be good to have been? You know, I think uh, I think it will be good to have been. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, good. Good. Um, like they wouldn't have gotten Bill the Pony, JJ. See, look at that. I mean, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, Green Great Dragon says, I remember Marion Pippin from over a year ago. So true. So true. Yeah, no, I, they, they were. Uh, it's been a while since we've seen Marion Pippin. True enough. True enough. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, hey, I know. Let's go on to Gorfindel's suggestion. Then, said Gorfindel, let us cast it into the deeps, and so make the lies of Saruman come true. For it is clear now that even at the council his feet were already on a crooked path. He knew that the ring was not lost forever, but wished us to think so, for he, had, for he began to lust for it for himself. Yet often lies, truth is hidden. In the sea, it would be safe. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. So Gorfindel comes up with Plan C here, right? Um, and I still kind of wonder to what extent he's playing the straight man here. He's raising legitimate options, legitimate possibilities. Um... But it is Plan C, exactly, exactly. Drow snake, yes, absolutely. Um, yes, um, or is he basically trying to move the discussion along by saying, "Let us consider systematically the best possible arguments that can be made in support." of each non-destroy the ring argument, and then uh, uh, that will bring us around uh, to this. Um, So, okay. Uh, 
Good. Sam, you ask a really important question there. Um, th Sam says, the central question is this. Does Gorfindel understand that even without the ring, Sauron will crush everyone? If yes, then he's being disingenuous. If no, why not? Um, okay. I think that... Um, I think that's not completely sure. Remember, they were just discussing. There are a couple things to, to remember here. Thing number one. Who's talking? <laughs> this is Gorfindel talking, right? This is Gorfindel. Mr. There were several servants of the enemy there, but they withdrew and I pursued them, right? That's Gorfindel and the Ringwraiths, the most terrible servants of Sauron, right? Um, the Nazgul don't even, like, cramp his style, right? I mean, he's not afraid of the Nazgul. Is he afraid of Sauron? Yeah, Sauron could take him, right? But, um, right, plus maybe he killed a Balrog, Nathan, exactly, right, yeah. Um, or I've been dead once, they don't scare me. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So, Gwarfindel um, is going to be a little bit less intimidated than many people in the room by Sauron. Not to mention the fact that, remember, it's not crazy to think that Sauron can be defeated. It's not. It's not. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that if Sauron doesn't have the ring, he definitely wins. I don't think it's foregone. Especially since, remember, we don't know that... Um, we, we talked about this when we talked about the... Well, when we talked... Just a couple, a couple weeks ago. They don't yet really know the military capabilities of Sauron, Right? And that, I think, is important. Um, exactly, Nathan. He'd been defeated with his ring. Absolutely. Sauron wearing the ring was defeated by Gilgalad and Elendil and Isildur. They beat him and cast him down, and Isildur looted his corpse. That is what happened. It has occurred. Glorfindel himself defeated a Balrog. It can happen. No, no one of them can defeat Sauron. Elrond has said he does not have the strength to resist Sauron permanently, to hold the ring against him, right? But what if they all banded together onto one battlefield, you know, the new last alliance, the really last alliance, uh, and took out Sauron again when Sauron doesn't even have his ring? Is it maybe theoretically possible? Right? Can we rule it out that it's impossible? I don't even know that we can rule out that it's impossible. Um, yes, D. Schwab, they did say, you know, Elrond did say, okay, the, uh, the, the Laster Alliance, <laughs> exactly. Um, the, uh, they did say, Elrond did opine that there, there's not going to be any other Last Alliance, right? Um, the elves have diminished and, yeah, agreed. Um, oh, no, Glorfindel wasn't there for the Last Alliance. He was still dead. Um, well, I mean, he wasn't back yet in Middle-earth. Um, but, um, uh, but Elrond was there. 
Anyway, Sauron is defeatable. In principle, Sauron is defeatable. Um, now, it's true that Sauron is not finally defeatable so long as the ring survives, right? Again, <laughs> cross-reference, Last Alliance, right? Uh, where they killed him once and looted his corpse, but it didn't take, right? He's come back now, uh, and things are bad again. So, so yeah, it's um, not a permanent solution, but again, kind of attractive. If we could overthrow Sauron again, I mean, look, worst case scenario, we buy another 3,000 years of peace. 3,000 years of peace would be nice, right? I mean, you know, that's, that's not, it's not nothing. It's not nothing at all. Um, exactly, Matthew. You just find a girl and a big dog. Yeah, that's another way to do it. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah, exactly. And for Thoughtless, I agree. If you can defeat Sauron militarily, then you could much more easily destroy the ring. That's also true. That's also true. Um, but um, anyway, so... Um, uh, so that's one thing that I would point out. One thing that I would point out is that I don't think... I don't think it's an absolute given that Sauron is undefeatable by all the forces of the good guy. Now, there's some pessimism on this point. There are many of the wise, including Elrond, who do not seem keen to try it. Um, uh, so, you know. Uh, and as it's going to turn out, I think it's pretty clear uh, that from a purely military standpoint, Sauron is going to mop the floor with the good guys. Right? It's just... It's not going to work. Um, and so Elrond is going to turn out to be correct that a Laster alliance, a Lastist alliance, uh, is not, um, is not going to pan out. That's not really going to be an option. But is it worth considering? Sure. I think it's worth considering. Um, but, so that's one thing um, that I would say. And again, remember, Gorfindel. Right. Um, you know, I've been dead. I've faced Balrogs. I met the Witch King and I wasn't impressed either time. Um, so, uh, so absolutely. Um, but uh, yes, Gandalf will say that victory cannot be achieved by arms, evil Dr. Cannon. But he will say that in the Return of the King. He will say that after the Battle of Pelennor Field. Gandalf has a good deal more information at that point than he has now. Um, so again, that's exactly what I think it is after they actually get a taste of the military might of Sauron. They know they don't suspect anymore. They know that this war has, they have no hope of victory in the war, but they don't, I think yet absolutely know this. Um, and, um, and I agree forth dauntless. If the plan was last Alliance part two, the reunion, um, They've waited. They've they they've left it a bit late. Uh, you're right that the last alliance made a preemptive strike before Sauron was ready, and they've not done that. So, um, they um, uh, the abortive strike by the White Council against Sauron, A.K.A. the Necromancer and Mirkwood, was their best shot. Right? They took a shot, and it it didn't pan out. Right? It didn't work. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Kurtzimus, that's a perfectly fair point that even if they did win the war, history shows that it, it wouldn't necessarily help 
destroy the ring. Yeah, it would clear the path to Mount Doom for sure, but would they throw it in? Um, and if so, who? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, okay. Um, all right. Um, now, I agree, Gilbert, that uh, to Gorfindel, 3,000 years isn't that big of a deal. Agreed. But still, you know, it, it, it's, it's a respite. It would be a perceptible respite uh, and would change the dynamics of Middle Earth for sure. Right. You know, if, uh, you know, they could maybe make some more progress on some other projects. Right. If uh, if Sauron were out of the way for several thousand more years. Um, but um, anyway, OK. So, again, so as far as Gorfindel's question, do I think that they know for a fact that they can't defeat Sauron even as so long as the ring is in existence, whether he has it or not? No, I do not think they know that for sure. At least not yet. Um, uh yeah, exactly. It's kicking it down the road, but it's kicking it way down there. Even by Elvish standpoint, from from an Elvish standpoint, it's kicking it way down the road. And who knows what could happen in the meantime, right? Um, so I don't think in that way, I don't think that it's a disingenuous, um, uh, it's a disingenuous suggestion uh, on that level. Um, it would, throwing the ring in the ocean, presumably, would at least make it pretty sure that Sauron's not getting it back, right? Um, in the sea, it would be safe, says Gorfindel. Um, and they've got some reason to think that. I mean, Magor chucks the Silmaril into the sea and nobody ever saw it again. So, you know, like it's... Um, uh, he's probably right. It's probably not going to... You know, somebody's probably not going to be like deep sea fishing and, you know get pulled out of the boat and pull up the ring from the bottom of the ocean. Um, it wasn't safe in a river, but, you know, I agree, Gilgonther, but, you know, it's totally different. Totally different situation. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree that Sauron is going to tangle with Olmo. This raises the question that I know you guys were discussion, discussing on the discussion board as well, which is, are the Valar safe? Um, is there any chance that one of the reasons that they would not receive the ring beyond the sea is that they don't, they don't, they, they would be like, don't you bring your radioactive waste over here? Um, we don't want to pollute this place, right? You want to send that to the blessed realm? Um, no, thank you. We don't want your thoroughly evil corrupting artifacts in Valinor because people might get corrupted. As Ray says, what if Ossay finds the ring? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that would be awkward. It could be awkward. Um, are they corruptible? See, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I, uh, um, I don't think that. All right. Facts. Fact number one: the Valar are manifestly corruptible. The Maiar are manifestly corruptible. No question. Right? And this is not just because Melkor fell and Sauron fell and Saruman fell. It's not just that that leads us to this conclusion. Right? Ase fell, but apologized. Aule fell, but apologized. Or almost fell. Right? I mean, it was Aule transgressed. Um, and 
you know, he started down a similar road to Melkor's road. He apologized, right? And repented and was restored. But um, it happens. It can happen. No question. No question. So are they corruptible? Yes. We have positive evidence that the Valar and the Ainur are corruptible. Um, Could they be corrupted, tempted by the ring and corrupted? Like, this is a more complicated question to me. And here, the reason I say it's more complicated, it's less obvious to me. Yes, like Aule. Let's take Aule, right? We know Aule is corruptible. My question is, you know, I mean, with Tom Bombadil, the ring has no power over Tom Bombadil. Now, I believe, as we said before, that the ring has no power over Tom Bombadil because Tom Bombadil is perfectly content. Tom Bombadil has no unfulfilled desires, right? He, um, um, he's, he lives in a, a sort of spiritual place where the ring has no power over him. It's got nothing to tempt him to. Um, Tom Bombadil is master. But, um, but at the same time, Sauron's ring, Sauron was one of the Maiar of Aule, right? Sauron was a junior assistant of Aule. A ring which contains a part of the essence of one of his junior assistants could overcome Aule? Maybe... I don't know. I mean, it's a little hard for me to be confident in saying that the ring of power, Sauron's ring of power, could overcome Aule. Um, Just because Aule is so much greater. Now, again, doesn't mean he can't fall, and the greater you are, the more likely you are to fall in Tolkien's world in many ways. Um, But I... um, don't really believe that that would happen. I really don't. Um, uh, yeah, GDC says Aule would be too busy criticizing the design flaws to get tempted. Yeah, he'd be like, oh, really, Myron? Come on now. I taught you better than this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree, Ray. I agree that there is a... It's not that one cannot imagine an avenue to the temptation of the Valar, right? Um, But mortals are tempted, even big mortals, right? Uh, Like um, Galadriel or Gandalf are tempted by the ring uh, because it would grant them an increase in power, right? Remember Gandalf's words. With that power, I would have power too great and terrible. Right? And over me, the ring would gain a power still greater. Um, Is that true of Aule? Would Aule look at the ring and be like, with this ring, I would be able to accomplish so much more than I can accomplish right now? No, I I really don't think he would. I think he would be like, oh, that's cute. Disgusting but cute, right? I, I, I don't think he would be tempted because I don't think the ring would gain, it would not be a net increase, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So um, 
I, it's not that I think that they're incorruptible. It's not that I can't imagine a, a path um, that could lead to their corruption. I just don't think the ring has the uh, juice. I really don't. Not, not, not the Valar. But does that mean it would be safe in Valinor? No, but I also have to say, like, does it mean that Aule couldn't destroy it? Uh, I kind of I suspect that Aule has the wherewithal to destroy it. So again, I don't think that the objection to sending it beyond the sea is that they couldn't do anything with it. Um, or that they'd be afraid it was going to... I can easily imagine Aule being like, All right, give me that. <laughs> give me that. I'm going to take it and melt it. Do we really think that the personal forge of Aule is not as hot as the heart of Mount Doom? Right, the forges of Sauron's ancient might. What is Sauron's ancient might compared to Aule's ancient and current might? Right. So again, I, I just, I don't think. <laughs> right, exactly. Gilgoth there says Aule could destroy it, and the Valar collectively could destroy the entire continent it was on. Uh, new volcano required. Give them five minutes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so. Um, so no, I, 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 I just, I, I'm, I'm kind of backtracking a little bit here because I wanted to address that. I know you guys were discussing that question about would the Valar be corrupted? Are the Valar corrupt? So I don't think the, I don't think, I don't think that Valinor is in any danger from the ring. Is, does it mean no one in Valinor would be? Oh, absolutely. Could the elves over there be corrupted? Sure. Could some of the Maiar be corrupted? Sure. Do I think the Valar themselves are in much danger? No, because Sauron is um, Sauron is a blip on their radar. You know, Sauron is a uh, is a is a, a you know a, a, a piece of dog doo doo on the bottom of their shoe. You know, it's annoying. It smells bad, but no, I think they could deal with it. Um, but but I so I think the reason they don't want it is not that. I don't think that that's why. I don't think that they're afraid of it, and that's why they wouldn't receive it. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we will come to the response. We're going to have to stop after this passage, but, um, so we'll come to the response to Gorfindel's, um, deep sea diving. Uh, well, I mean, you just chuck it in and then let it sink, um, uh, and hope that nobody does do any deep sea diving thereafter. Um, and I love, I, the last thing I wanted to say is I wanted to connect it back to Saruman. Uh, I love the way that he does this, right? Notice that what Gorfindel is doing, and and it's, by the way, it's his reference to Saruman that convinces me that Gorfindel really means this as a suggestion. I don't think that he's just, um, you know, setting the ball up so that Elrond can spike it. I think that he intends this as an honest suggestion to to, to think their way through um, uh, uh honestly, through this possibility of throwing the ring into the sea. Um, and it's, it's his bringing up of, of, of Saruman. What I like about that, what interests me there, is that here he seems to be um, almost doing doing something very like what Elrond himself does. Right? Saruman, it's clear that Saruman was lying. And when Saruman said that to the council, about the ring definitely rolling down the river to the sea. It's clear that his feet were already on a crooked path, right? He was obviously lying to us the whole time. He was playing us probably before that, but certainly by then. Um, 
He knew that the ring was not lost forever, but wished us to think so, for he began to lust for it himself. So he's diagnosing here. Yet often lies truth is hidden, right? Perhaps the very lies of Saruman, they also are meant to be tributary to the glory of the real story, right? Sauron was a liar. Saruman, sorry, was a liar. But often lies truth is hidden. Perhaps that lie which he meant to deceive us, which he meant for evil, in fact, is a suggestion for... has, in fact, provided to us the means by which we should respond to this. So you can see him kind of doing the same sort of thing as Elrond. Like, is this the pointer? Right? We're, we're looking at evidence. We're looking at, like, what, what, what should be, right? What's meant to happen here? Remember, that's another word that Gandalf uses. You know, you were meant to have it, he says to Frodo. Um, maybe that's what we were meant to... Maybe that's a sign that that's what we were meant to do. Um, that even Saruman's own corruption ends up um, providing the answer, right? Um, and I like that reading. I mean, by Gorfind, I like Gorfindel's reading. Like, I, you know, I like the cut of his jib, right? I mean, that, that, that works for me. Um, I think that's cool. Now, again, I, in the end, I don't think that he's... Um, uh, I don't think that he's... Uh, wrong um uh i mean i don't I, I don't sorry i mean i don't think that he's right uh this suggestion is not the best course um but i like the way that he's thinking it through and i think that the argument that he gives although it might seem a little bit funny often lies truth isn't like because saruman said this when he was lying to us maybe that means we should do it might seem weird but to me actually that's kind of compelling um i really like his argument here um but, um, uh, but of course, as we'll see, it's not going to be the direction that we're going to go. One last thing, Kurtzimus, I wanted to address that. Um, uh, Kurtzimus says, I don't think the ring can be destroyed anywhere but Mount Doom. The level of power doesn't matter. Feanor wasn't as powerful as the Valar, but only he could make and unlock the Silmarils. I don't think so. Um, they were asking his permission. Um, I don't think it is true that nobody could unlock the Silmarils but him. They wouldn't do it without his blessing, because the Silmarils were his. He made them, right? So they ask his permission to do it. But I don't think it is true that Aule does not have the technology to unlock the Silmarils. I think that he could have done it. I think that he was fixing to do it, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but um, uh, so, you know, you might be right, um, that there might be something like particularly special about Mount Doom in that way, that it's not just that Mount Doom is the only fire that is sufficiently... Like, it's, not, it's obviously not about the actual temperature, you know, measured in Kelvin or whatever. Like, it's, you know, and that any fire sufficiently hot uh, would be able to destroy the ring. It's clearly not about that. Um, but... Um, uh, Anyway, so I, 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 I think that there's, there's certainly more to Mount Doom than that. Um, but um, uh, I think that... Um, I think that... There's orders of magnitude here 
you know, do I think that Sauron is capable of doing a work of craft that Aule, his master, can't, you know, can't melt down, can't undo? It's possible that he would not, but could not. I'm just, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical. I think Aule could do it. I, uh, I don't see any reason to think that Aule couldn't, couldn't handle it. Um, but, um, and okay. Okay. Last one. Then we're totally go. We're totally stopping. Uh, Lisa Linde. Um, I, the, the, if, uh, the greater you are, the harder you fall is my premise. Then I'm saying that Bombadil is greater than Manway. No. Do I think that Manway could fall? Of course I think that Manway could fall. I think we have good reason. We've, we, we know that Manway could fall. Why? His brother did. Morgoth, you know, Melkor is Manway's brother in the mind of Iluvatar. Um, Melkor is a continual reminder that even Manway, even the greatest, can fall. Now, he doesn't, to his credit, right? But could he? Yes. Could Bombadil fall? Of course he could. But he's not falling. Um, uh, so, and again, uh, I think, I just think that Bombadil is in a different space than the rest of them. Do I think he's incorruptible? No, but I think he's passed the test, basically, and shown that um, he is not prone uh, to any of that, uh, to any of that stuff. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Um, and that's it. I'm going to let everybody go. So it's field trip time. Thanks for joining uh, our book discussion again this evening. We're going to do our Lotro field trip now. Um, so, um, uh, you're welcome to stick around uh, for that. Uh, we'll be back for more. <laughs> Tune in next time to see what uh, uh, what we have to say to Glorfindel's Let's Chuck It in the Ocean suggestion, uh, and we'll take it from there. And I will warn you, I have some problems. Again, I got more problems. I got all kinds of problems, as you see, but uh, I got some problems with the passages that are immediately coming up. Uh, we are coming up on some of my least favorite passages in the entire Council of Elrond, so I'm hoping you guys are going to be able to help me with those. All right, uh, so let us do field trip time. Good evening. Yeah, we got trouble right here in Rivendell. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, how are you doing, Valor? Are you good? Yeah, I'm good to go. Uh, let me start following up people. All right. And yeah, we're, we're starting to get into the whole who could who could arm wrestle who kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. Oh, that's right. I set my uh, milestone to Vigbar. The yes, little, that's right. It was closer little village. To where we yeah. Vegbar with the invisible guards. Oh my! Yeah. Soon to not be invisible. Okay. As long as they're not deadly, I'll be happy. Yeah. No, they will still be deadly to lobies. Apparently, that's intended. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, I think that's everybody. If not, please send. All right. Yeah. Some some folks might meet us. I might meet up with us there. Yep. Send a IM to Linus two S's. That's right. JJ points out that you do have to avoid afford the Bjornings' tolls. I mean, their tolls are high, and uh, apparently they will get violent, visibly or invisibly, if. Uh, you know, you can't uh, pay the toll. All right. See, there's Demetherial standing on a on a sheaf of, of grain there. 
So one, one question I have is he said, let's not let's not make it a let's not make it the Valar's problem. Then immediately his next suggestion is let's let Olmo handle. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's um, it's almost like he's kind of. Um, and again, I think this is a sensible thing to do, kind of pushing the boundaries or like feeling around the edges. Right. OK, OK. Putting it on a ship and sending it back to Valinor. Right. Mm-hmm. I get just like handing it over to the Valar. That would be um, that would be a kind of abdication. Right. Like it's our role to take thought for Middle Earth like they're they they understand their role as the stewards of Middle Earth and that it would be a kind of abdication of that stewardship for them to just try to foist it off on the Valar. So, OK, so what what if we don't take it all the way? What if we just, you know, drop it off the side of the boat halfway there? Right. Surely that's yeah. uh, that's OK. Uh, and, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, again, it's a sensible probing to say, like, you know, cause, cause as he points out, like, it's not like we're refusing to solve the problem, right? Like we're totally solving the problem. We're just, it's just, we're taking an aquatic based solution to the problem rather than going over the sea to avoid the problem so that this would be okay. Right. Or the Valinor's solutions to the problem, which is let's take parts of Middle Earth and move it somewhere else. Right. Right. Exactly. In the downward direction. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah, no, if they could uh if they could put the ring on an island which would get ducked into wherever the place that Numenor went to is, that that would solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Chuck it into the Temple of Sauron? Yeah. Yeah, have it go down with the Temple of Sauron. That would solve the problem. Well, but yes, yes, it was Iluvatar who did that, for sure. But but still, you know, it, it would be a good solution. But again, they're not going to suggest that solution. Okay, there's that... There's that ring boundary again. Hmm. The ring and four pointed star or like diamond shape in the intermediary bands there, right? Oh, yes, I see. I'm trying to decide one, two, three, four, five. See, there are still seven rings per side. I can't get around it. It might be a coincidence, but I wonder if it's a coincidence. Uh, yeah. yeah. I sort of think it is not a coincidence. Oh, I went ahead. There you guys And I do still think this is clearly dwarvish architecture. The knotwork all suggests... And, and those rings in particular ties it uh, to the gates of Mirkwood that we were looking at last time. The, the, mm-hmm. the way that this road took when it went into Mirkwood. And, and the sunburst designs and the, and the knotwork designs. Yes, yes. All of this stuff is very similar. To that gateway. There's eight rings when it's a water base. Hmm. Alas. Hmm. Yeah, I guess there is an eighth ring over there. Okay. Well, still, you know... Though, hang on a second. Maybe it's like... Hang on. The one ring? (laughs) No... Well, they just had jewelry on their minds. Well, and here's the other thing. 
It could also be meant to be not, because notice they're actually not complete rings. They're interlocking rings, like the oh, lover's like chainmail. Yeah. So maybe or it's broken. a design meant to recall or evoke the dwarvish invention of of chainmail. They could. And they are broken rings, most yes. of them. There's like to let the demons out. A complete one, and then there are broken rings. It also interests me that the diamond is not like on this side. The diamond is in the middle. Yeah. But on this side, that I can. I don't need my horse, technically, at this point. It inhibits my seeing things. Um, here, the diamond is on the side, not in the middle. And then over here, the diamond is back in the middle. And is it symmetrical on this side? It implies the stone was was uh, created in the pattern and then later cut to fit the Maybe. monument. Maybe. Yeah, no, it's in the middle over here on the inward-facing side, so it's not the same over here. Huh. Okay. Honestly, it looks like a ribbon that got wrapped around the, the pillar. Yeah. Yeah, that it was it was sort of design- Well, that's why I was one one of the things I was looking for was to see if the rings and diamonds made a continuous pattern around you know, so that like just looking at one strip is sort of not right. enough to see the whole pattern, but if you had to see the whole ring but I don't really see it clearly. Hmm. Um doesn't seem to me to work that way, but Maybe I'm just still not perceiving it. It works better on the, the, the smaller, like, taller up on the, the yeah, pillar. Yeah, yeah. But I guess they miscalculated um, <laughs> on the lower end. Right, oh, the wider yeah, that, ones. That is, that is cut tile. Yeah, I yeah. have that in my basement. You buy these tiles with these preset patterns, <laughs> and then you got all these weird corners. Exactly. you got to get around. Exactly, exactly right. So, so maybe they did intend it to be a seven-ring design, and then they got to this one, and they're like, um... We need to put it. Is eight rings just as good? Is that okay? And the foreman is like, they'll never notice. Just ship put it, it on. Yeah, ship it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I ain't paying for fixing that. Go put it on. Yeah, I could see that. Okay. So, definitely a dwarvish bridge. And of course, in the way of dwarvish constructions in Lotro's Middle Earth, it's huge. Right, we yeah. have this enormous vault that I mean, this is like a massively overkill bridge. Yeah, they just need a sign saying "Don't call me short." From right, top. right, yeah, exactly. If that would uh, would seem to suffice, I like. See, here's what we're trying to see closer up from underneath, but we can see oh, yeah. much more closely here. It looks very much like those uh, the designs we've seen in the Men Village. The the swirly ones, you mean, in the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and JJ, I think that's the one you were talking about, the uh the thumbprint design. Yeah, or were you like thinking about the, the, the triangle the the diamond one here? Um uh, Yeah, it's interesting. The diamond one looks almost like a snowflake inside a diamond, right? I don't talking about the starburst thing or no, the, uh, the the brown bits, the the diamond, the the, the copper bits. Yeah, yeah, the copper bits, on the side. Yeah. Um, right. Yes, yes. The 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 thumbprint one. It is. Uh, yeah, that's this. The gray part in the middle, JJ. Um, yeah. Oops. Um, yeah. So. 
it does look a little bit like the swirly stone. It's not the same, of course, as the swirly pattern on the stones in, like, the Barrow Downs. It does look slightly facial, Emily, though I kind of feel like it's a little bit, like, you know, Rorschach like test-ish there. Yeah. But, but, yes, I see a face, too. Um... Well, if you look up, you can see the diamond motif much larger on the underside of one of the overcast, overcasts, buttresses, whatever those are. Under the... If you look straight up and you look at the, the beams going across our head, see the diamond patterns. The diamonds, yes. Yes, that four-pointed star, four star diamond thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think they should have fired the foreman. If you look at the arches over the bridge, they're a little bit out of step. You know, I noticed that too. It's almost like they were using the metric system on one side and imperial units on the other side. Uh, yeah, or you that get the lowest bidder. They probably they probably meant to do that. They probably yeah. have never on the money. Yeah, this is. Yeah, this is uh, it's interesting. Or maybe it, it could be the foundation shifted. Notice a lot of this stuff's knocked over. Yeah, it's possible that it slipped, maybe. I don't know. But you can that, see. Wouldn't that uh, also inform the, the actual bridge? Like the walkway across the bridge? Besides falling into the river. I was going to say, I think it is. Perhaps it did affect it. Right, yeah. yeah I mean, but it didn't actually like cause a... Like, that's a perpendicular uh, drop, but I'm thinking of a parallel one. one well, maybe it was at one... Might have been at one time. Yeah. I think it might have since been dropped away. Right, And that for folks who don't know the game, that is the... Whoops. That is the Carrick right there that we're seeing to the north. Oh, yep. So we are just south of the Carrick. Well, I say just south. Um, in game world, where all dimensions are smaller, we're just south of the Carrick. So it looks like it's just a stone th throw away. But even in game, it's further away than it looks because we're still pretty high up. And, um, uh, and again, you've got the whole scale thing uh, in the game. Artius, not to scale. Yeah, yeah. Intriguing. So I have been told there is a title you can get if you land on that pillar in the center. That, but you can't get to it from this side. Can't do it. Oh, oh, you can only jump from, from the, the other, other side. side. Oh, no wonder it didn't work when I tried it. Oh, so this pillar over here isn't just as good. In the middle, yeah. Uh, I don't think you can reach it from here. No, there's a there's a nearer one right below. No, it's got to be the one closest to you, Corey. All right, the one that you can see there sticking up in the middle? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't work from this side, Oh, guys. didn't work. That was close, JJ, but not quite. No. Maybe with a war steed at full tilt. Maybe. But Maybe. I have to but say, JJ, that was, um, that, was, uh, that was very graceful. That was a beautiful, and graceful leap. And JJ survived that? Wow. JJ survived. Yeah, you will... Oh, it's even money if you'll survive or not. It depends on where you land. Like whether like you hit water rocks. or rocks, basically? No, it doesn't actually matter. No. It's Either more like way. How, it depends on how you plummet, I suppose. I see. 
I see. Yep, no, that was pretty close. Well, okay. I still don't quite know what to make of the the brown diamonds with the what look like snowflakes inside. That's to me one of the newest things. Plus the you know the ring with the other diamonds. Well, first of all, can we just point out that we keep noticing that there are diamonds here, you know, and that diamond design is not has not been a common one in dwarvish architecture. So, if these things that we're seeing are idiosyncrasies of dwarvish architecture here, what does that tell us about here, the gates well, of Mirkwood and this bridge? Yeah. That with the shoddy workmanship makes me wonder if it's a rush job or like maybe uh, maybe relationships were already starting to cool with the Mirkwood I wonder. I mean, presumably. So when do we think this bridge was built? Um, I think we mentioned something like this was... Uh, hmm. I think we mentioned this is a trade route through Mirkwood. Right. It does seem to go to a trade, mo- trade route, an old trade route through Mirkwood. Possibly to Erebor. Right. From... The Erebor. From, from the question is... I mean, this is the road, like, so if you just follow the Dwarf Road through the Shire, through Bree, and onwards, you get here, right? Mm-hmm. This is the main Dwarf Route from, uh, you know, the west to the east. Mm. My question is, does it have anything to do, did it ever have anything to do with Khazad Doom? Is to me the... Mm-hmm. Big question. I think we'd need to see some Moria architecture to figure out where exactly this would fall. Yeah, it's true. We haven't done Moria yet. We'll get there. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that may be one of the only places where the amount of Lotro world that we have to discover is going to take us longer than the text that inspires it. But Possibly. we'll see. Um, you know, like we explored Rivendell for a few weeks out of the year that we've been in Rivendell. But uh, yeah, but will we be able to explore all of Lotro Moria in the time it's going to take us to do the Moria chapters? Maybe, maybe. But anyway, OK. Um, OK, so I don't, I don't think apart from thinking new or old, Oh, didn't happen with the horse either. Yeah, again, I think it's supposed to be from the other side. Yep, I know. It's just experimenting. from the other side for sure. I just don't know if it's possible. It, um, yeah. You know, I, the more I'm looking from this angle, the more I, it's not actually that close. Right. It's not. There's right. actually a pillar closer to us, but uh, you can't see it from this angle. Oh, see. Yeah, okay. We'll see. What is a nice title you can get? I think it's right below you, actually. Let's head north towards the Carrick. All right. Sounds good. Maybe, ma'am. I have a suggestion, Corey. What? Um, We could go visit the goblins. Sure. Because we don't have time to, like, actually explore the Carrick today. So I'm I'm kind of inclined to save the car. Are there goblins over here on this shore? Remember, this is close to the back uh, to the front door. 
the front door. And there's lots of goblins there. Right. Or the back door. Right. Yeah, the back the back door. Right. So, because so when we were taking the pass through the mountains on the way here, I was being very, very good and not leaving the path. Yeah, Wigan went through there, but you like didn't. You're to. Yeah. I remember that, because that was at Mythmoot. Yeah, because we can find the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the burned mm-hmm. fir trees, right? Yeah. We'll still have to kill things because it's a one twenty zone, but okay. Uh, you're you're actually going to pick up the new deed. There's the uh, there's a path of the uh, company deed that you probably already have because you came through the high pass. Mm. Right. But now Narnian will pick up the stuff that involves uh, the front door. Okay, so we're getting up into the mist now. So we still need to go up a bit further than this, yeah. But I don't know where I'm going exactly. There are. I want to. I want to look out over the. Uh... Oh yeah, this is this is a nice look out here. Okay, mm-hmm. so. Ready. Can we see it from here? The we arrow. We can see the veil, yeah. And the carrick. Hey. The carrick, but we can also see the. Goblin. Yeah, I just killed my horse. That was super rude. Okay. Um, anyway. Um, okay, so... Furs and five trees. Right. But we can't see the burned... Oh, we can see the burned glade. Is that it right across from us? Mm-hmm. I think I see the scorching on the ground. Do they have... The hill that they slid down? Okay, let's see if we can backtrack. So let's 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 head down there. Can we do we have to go all the way around? Can we is this still pretty steep over here, yeah? I mean we could try sliding. There is a path down there, I'm trying to remember where it is. Yes, so Fromius Bujum, yes. This is the pass that comes down uh, from the high pass that goes to the old forest road. That's right. Um, And so we're quite near to the... um, We're near to the west gate. Or, sorry, the back door, you know, that they came out, that the Bilbo and the dwarves came out of. Which, as I recall, was over in this general direction. And there are lots of goblins around here. Ah, the warg clearing, yes. Yep. Yes, here we are. And there are wargs still here at the Chronicle of the Company. There we go. Mm. Up the trees quick, cried Gandalf. There we go. So these are the trees that are they're all burned down now. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, it's just a corpse. Is there still hunting people around here? So I wonder which were the five fir trees in question. Well, they're five, stumps. So five big are stumps? They, are they five big stumps? Here? I mean, there's two, like these two trees over here, which are 
which are burned, you know, like broken off halfway, but they probably don't count. It's probably, the, oh, no, wait, there's a sixth stump over there. The Hard. scree. These, these little wormy things are called the scree crawler. So. Wormy things? The, the, the worms? Centipede. I was fighting a worm. Centipede no. thing. Oh, centipede things, right, right. Scree crawlers, which doesn't fly. This is the scree that. Uh, right. So, well, they, yes, the scree is what I is where is what I want to find next. So, let's see if we can backtrack. So, I'm guessing that these ones that are clustered kind of together at this end of the clearing, mm -hmm. one, two, three, four, five here, yeah, are the five fir trees in question. And. Uh, I love how it's still scorched. Of course, it was like 70 years ago, but... Uh, yeah. Uh, Goblins salted the ground. Yeah, exactly. Or was it wizard fire? That's right. It was, a, it was a, when you make a fire with pine cones, it's much more permanent. Okay, so on their way here, though, they came down from the back gate and they slid down that the hill of scree that was sliding all around them and dislodging rocks and boulders and things. So that's what I would like to look for. Where were they coming from from there over this way? Uh, they probably just went straight down like how we usually slide down hills. Does anyone know where the back door is from here? Due west. Due west. Okay, so we're headed in the right general direction. I can't get up here. You have to come down the valley and around. Oh, yeah? I can't go up here? So. Oh, yes, I can. Okay, of course you can. Found a way Don't around. Tell what they can't do. They will try to find <laughs> it anyway. Okay, yeah, that cliff is more oh, of a cliff than a there? slide. Horseback. Okay. okay. Come on. Get up. Get up. Oh, and I still have my uh, cat set on useless. Not kill all the sheep? Yes. Um, it's safe to set him on active here. Yeah, yeah. Well, he should be on aggressive anger. mode. I don't think What's you're going to anger any shepherds out here this time. Yeah, exactly. Guard mode. Um, IT mode. He is supposed to be on aggressive mode. He's just ignoring everything. Okay. Oh, he was fighting some deer with me, but All he's right. going well, after go. the deer. And here's the burglar, exclaimed Bilbo, stepping into the middle and slipping off his ring. So this is where they were when that happened? That's where the game thinks uh -huh. so. Okay, so the game is telling us that this is where the dwarves were all sitting, which means the back gate must be really quite close to here. Yeah, yeah. So where's that? That There's so, so much underbrush, I can't look up without being buried in... Due west. Of, right? Look for the Bouncing Guardian. Okay, right, I'm seeing. Guardian. Okay. To Hillgrass. Okay. So the back door... Now this part's not barren. It is quite lovely out here. No, no, it's nice. Is it up here, up this little yes, cleft is. here? Okay. All right. And I know there... Oh, there it is. I see it. I see it. So there won't be, you know, any brass buttons because those got scattered around Goblin Town. 
Are yeah. you sure about that? Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know. I'm hoping there's one, because I think that's the one I'm missing. There's goblins on scaffolding. Got a little here. current goblin town over there. We'll come back to that. Now, this door is really interesting because yeah. it does not look like it was constructed by goblins. No way. This seems to be suggesting the idea that all of the goblin tunnels are basically taken over from dwarves. I don't know about all we've seen them, but this is a pretty fine-looking gate, I'm sure it wouldn't Except where's the gate? I mean, I Get see the pillars. Okay. They drove him deep into the bog. Now he feasts on toad and frog, wriggling maggot, worm and grub. What a feast for mad old mad ub. We've got another old mad ub poem. Right. Okay, the door is locked. So this is the door. Yeah, see, well, that confirms it. The door is made to look just like the side of the of the mountain. Right? Yep. Typical dwarf door, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. That's great. That's awesome. Okay, so... And there's a Bjorning Scout hiding over here in the bushes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. Oh, we got some eagles up there. That's good. Okay, so we've got... So here's the, the gate, and... Are there any buttons... I didn't see any buttons. I mean, presumably yeah. the buttons would have been picked up long ago. Oh, well, we got a note here. Yeah, I just got a title for Chronicler of the Company. Oh, you completed the deed. Yeah. All right. So there's two two Thorin's Company deeds. This was actually the second one because this came into the game later, where it starts here and goes all the way to Erebor. Right. And, like, the first half starts at the forest gate of Markwood. Right, right. Okay, so this was a former dwelling of the dwarves, and notice how it has the... Okay, I'm counting rings again. Wait, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There are eight or nine. Yeah, yeah. Okay, in between these, because they go all the way up, so the pattern is much more regular there. Mm. Okay. So better craftsmanship than the other one. Yeah, so this is clearly the same kind of construction as both the bridge and the gate to Mirkwood. Same dwarves, mm -hmm. same period. Um, and um, so interesting that the goblins are taking that over. This, of course, explains why, you know, the door, the back door, as Bilbo describes it, was you know, so not just like a goblin, you know, cave or something like that. It was, uh, you know, had a precise swinging door and stuff that was left somewhat ajar that he squeezed through. It almost implies once again, the goblins took it over, but they didn't know how to work the dwarf magic. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. Okay. So, so let's go back from here because there's still the one thing I'm missing. So they come running out of here and they come pelting on down this way 
and the goblins don't chase them because the sun is out, unlike these goblins who don't seem to mind. And Bilbo, having sneaked out and left his buttons behind, also comes down here. And so it is at the bottom of the hill, at the bottom of this little ravine, that he meets back up with the dwarves and Gandalf, wondering, he gets this far and wonders, should I go back inside uh, into those horrible tunnels to look for my friends? And then they say no, and this was it, right? This was the spot where he comes across them. You know, this is the, and here's the Burgor spot, right? Yeah. Okay. So now from here, there's the warg clearing almost due east from here. So Gandalf then leads them off and says, hey, let's like uh, try to lose them, right? So I'll take you this way. So I'm, I'm going further uphill than we were coming because I'm trying to see if I can find the missing place, which is the hill that they would have slid down. Maybe this? Maybe. I don't know. It's pretty easy to fall down rocks in here. And then maybe I this? did some sliding there. Yeah, I just did some sliding. That's possible, and we're still... Yep, we're still right on the route. Now, yep. of course, like the... Um, the recreation of the actual, like, slide down the scree with dislodging boulders and stuff is not something that's going to work really fluidly with the game mechanics. Yes. But as long as you're facing in the opposite direction, you can slide down pretty safely without breaking your leg. Right. Seems like a good hallmark for a... Because, yes, for right over here is the warg glade, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, back to the warg clearing. Now, we didn't get any kind of landmark in at the hill. Is there one? Did we miss a druid's fire? Is there a, is there a, a deed or quest marker, you know, at the place where... I'm trying to get up the tree to, like, hide from the wargs. I think yes it's to not the working. Team, but no to the marker. Not every place of interest has a marker. Yeah, this I mean, it, it marked where they were reunited, and it marked where... Um, uh, it marked where... I'm going to actually... You, look at that. I used an offensive skill. How about that? I even <laughs> killed something. Well done, sir. Look at that. Like, what can I do? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lore master. I set fire to things. So... Um, Oh, good library. I did. I did. Um, okay. Yeah. I can understand if they didn't mark the, the Hill of Scree, especially since, again, they can't exactly reproduce that. Yeah, the Hill of yes. Scree doesn't have a specific marker. Yeah. Um, the closest thing you'll want to probably take a look at the deed log for this, uh, and it should give some more information. So you should have all of the ones from the uh, door out to um, Right. Right, where Bilbo lost his buttons, where Bilbo reunites with the company, and then where the company encountered the wargs. Yep, so we're not missing one in between. Where the eagles where took the company to safety. Carrick. Yeah. 
where the Eagles sit down, set down the company. Um, so do we get up to the Eagles' Iries? Yes. Right. Okay, so we'll do that next time. Um, Remember to bow. Right. Okay. All right. There's actually a quest that sends you up there, and yes, that's what you get to do. Nice. Okay. Okay, so there's the Carrick over there. So next time, we will head to the Carrick. Excellent. That's nice. Nice view of the Carrick. Yeah, it's really quite close. Again, in the diminished scale of of the game, it's closer than it would have been in in the world. But, uh, But still, we're in the area. And then across the river, there vaguely to the northeast is the land of the, is like Bjorn's house, right? Land of the Bjornings up there? Yep, where the dark green trees are. Yep, mm-hmm. yep, okay. So, road to Bjorn's house next time. We're almost done with the Vales of Anduin. We're going to wow. get to the Carrick and we're going to visit the Eagles and then we're going to head over to Bjorn's house. Excellent. Pretty awesome. Okay, cool. And we're only a little bit later than usual. So, I will... Well, not, I guess, what you, what is usual, right? <clears throat> so, I will say... Good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This was a fun and exciting field trip, and we'll get to the Carrick and the Eagles' Iries next time, maybe, so that'll be even better. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we'll see you guys next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.